1901, a woman by the name of Annie Taylor climbed into a barrel so that she could ride that barrel over Niagara Falls, the first person to do so. The reason for her crazy endeavor? She was struggling to make ends meet, and she was hoping for fame and financial security. It's Ryan from United Faith Mortgage, a faith and family mortgage team that tries to improve your financial outlook without having to ship you over a 170-foot waterfall. Our mortgage team happens to be an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender, which means our company gets to use its own money and make its own decisions within its own walls. There's no middleman. This advantage often allows us to get you a better rate, which can save you monthly and lifelong money through a refinance, or help you with a cash-out refinance, cashing out some of your home's equity to use for life. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. It's time for Open Line Chat. And joining us now, filling in for Dr. Michael Rydalek, is Dr. Stephen Sanchez, who's a professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute. He received his PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary and has published numerous works and reviews. Plus, he's a contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary, and he likes me best. And he's here <laughs> to answer your questions this morning on Open Line Chat. Good morning, Stephen. It's good to be with you again. Thank you. I like Tommy, too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, because I got a question for you to kick us oh, off. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so, of course, um, on our minds continually is what's happening in Israel and the Gaza Strip. And I just had a question about um, how we are to interpret what it means. And I'm not trying to, again, get on sides. I'm just trying to get come down the middle of what does it mean to pray for Israel and pray for Jerusalem in terms of today's issues? For instance, sometimes it I almost hear from some fellow believers, it's almost like you need to, as a Christian, always be on Israel's side, no matter what they're doing or what, you know, what the nuances are. That's the side of a Christian. And so I, it just makes I, I just want to understand that a little better. I love that you said you don't want to get on sides. We do want to be on one side, and that's God's side. Mm -hmm. We want to always be on God's side. And here's what's surprising, I think, to many Christians. Sometimes God's side is not the side we immediately thought he would be on. And so there are times throughout the Bible in history where God uses discipline and conflict to discipline his own people. And so, of course, anybody who says we should wipe out Israel and wipe them off the face of the map, mm -hmm. uh, that's not even on the table as a conversation starter. Mm -hmm. right. well, I'm, but what you're asking about here is how do we, how do we in understand that God might use conflict in the lives of his people to bring them back to him? Mm -hmm. And remember, at least two times, the most important ones, if you will, 722, God destroys the northern kingdom of Samaria, he uses the Assyrians to do it. Doesn't mm -hmm. destroy all the Jewish people, but he punishes them. And then in 586, he does it again in Jeremiah with Jeremiah as the prophet. The Babylonians come and destroy the city of Jerusalem. What's going on in those two moments? If you were a person standing on the sidelines watching, what would you do? Would you say, God, I'm against you because you're doing this to Israel? Or would you say, Lord, you're using this judgment to bring people back to you? Mm. And so I would say, follow along with Jeremiah. God even tells him in Jeremiah 7, 7, 16, as for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry. Do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. 
This is not to say don't pray for Jewish people or Israel, but rather I'm not going to stay this hand of judgment. I intend it to work an effect in my people. Mm. It's a difficult moment, but when God judges, we have to be with him. Mm. Okay, so you're hearing the voice of Dr. Stephen Sanchez kind of unpacking what's happening in Israel and and how— you know, how do you know when you're on God's side or not, whether God is using this moment as a moment to uh, really bring Israel back to herself? Um, and you shared with uh, Jeremiah where God said, don't even pray for these people. And that's shocking to somebody to, to hear God say mm-hmm. something like that to his prophet. But how do we know when we're like tracking with what God wants for the nation of Israel? So we're like with God lockstep and we don't miss it. I think we have to remember that God is interested in salvation of his people. Mm. He is trying to bring people back to him, and he's going to use the gospel to do it. And he's sometimes using, he's going to sometimes use conflict to do it. He's going to use blessing at times to do it. And when people don't want to repent and turn to him, all bets are off. He can do whatever he wants to bring people back to himself. And I think he, I had a student at Moody recently say, Pray for my people. God is going to use this conflict or that God would use this conflict to bring them back to him. And that's an amazing response. And I think we can get on board with that. Pray that this conflict would bring people to Jesus Christ because that's what they need most of all. Amen. Amen. That's a drop the mic moment. Thank you so much for your student and for sharing that with us. Uh, You're hearing the voice of Stephen Sanchez. He is filling in for Michael here on Open Line Chat. And uh, Stephen, we have a couple of other questions that have come in. This first one is from Josh in Ringgold. And so Josh asks this. He says, why does Matthew say in Matthew 8, 28, that there are two demon possessed men and other gospels say only one? Okay, that's an interesting one, right? You, you have, it could very well just be a matter of perspective, meaning they're interact, the, the, Jesus is interacting with two men, but the, for the perspective of the writer, for what's necessary to tell the story, he only tells one. We see this also in the case of uh, uh, blind, uh, blind Bartimaeus, Jesus going from one direction to Jericho and another direction the other way to Jericho, and you realize there are two Jerichos operating, and you say, okay, which is the perspective that the writer is talking about? And so sometimes it's just a matter of perspective. It's not mm. we're deceiving. It's a case of he didn't tell all the details because they weren't necessary for his story. Okay, okay so, so one writer includes the two that he saw. Maybe the other writer is only focused on the one is what He's you're only focused on the one. Yeah. That's right. Okay. okay. Yeah. And it's interesting how stories, um, depending on the person telling it, has a little bit different perspective because stories that are identical and are exactly the same are the ones that you actually call into question because it's almost like they all colluded so that their stories are identical. But we all look at life from a different perspective. And sometimes seeing that played out in scripture for me is very comforting. Yeah, that's right. Those, those, imper- those, I don't want to say imperfections. I want to say those, uh, nubs in the fabric, if you will, those little bits. Yep. Good. Dr. Stephen Sanchez is here filling in today, asking or answering some questions. But if you got one more question, I think we might have room for you at 423-629-8900. Yeah, you can ask it live even. This is the moment. But Stephen, so we have this question from someone who's having a disagreement. And it's on Mark 7, 1 through 23. And it says, Jesus declared all food clean. Um, what food is being referred to here? Spiritual food? 
food or physical food you eat, like pork or all the foods he said not to eat in the Old Testament, like vultures and split hooves and such? What's going on? I think so. Let's remember the big picture first. Jesus is talking about what defiles a person's heart. That's the big context, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing outside a person that can go into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. In the context that he's speaking, remember the Jews had a very strong understanding of defilement and becoming unclean. Various things can make somebody unclean. <clears throat> Excuse me, everything from touching a dead body to, to eating foods that you're not supposed to eat. Back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, God said, I'm going to make a distinction between you and those other people around you. And one of those distinctions is going to be the kinds of food you eat. To this day, archaeologists can dig at certain sites and identify who lived there simply by looking at the food bones that are in the trash. A lot of pig bones, not Canaanite. Not too many pig bones, Israelite. So there's a distinction based on food. The Jews brought this over into the New Testament and were very fastidious about it. Jesus wants to say, this is about your heart. Let's focus on the heart. But in the process of verse 19, we get that parenthetical statement by the writer, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus seems to be wiping away this distinction about foods that the Jews were not allowed to eat. And we see that play out in the book of Acts, where the Gentiles come into the church and some Jewish people want to impose upon them all the laws. And the apostles say, no, we're not doing that. They do not have to keep those food laws. So I would argue what Jesus is doing here is he's actually wiping away those food laws. And today, if you want to eat fish that doesn't have fins and scales, you can. I don't know why anyone in their right mind would want to eat a bat, but things are off the table (laughs) because God has declared all foods clean. Jacob wants to eat a bat. Yeah, And an eel. (laughs) <laughs> no, I draw the line at that seafood stuff anyway, so so that that's not for me at all. Okay. Remember that we also we we also see this play out when Peter goes mm-hmm. to visit uh Cornelius. Mm-hmm. He he that sheet falls down and and God says to Peter, "Take and eat." And Peter says, "Lord, I've never let anything uh unclean come into my mouth." And in the process, he's helping Peter see, "Don't say that about the Gentiles." But food is what he does because Jesus has already made all things clean. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for just pointing that out. You're hearing the voice of Dr. Stephen Sanchez answering your questions at 423-629-8900. And Stephen, we have another question about Israel, and it's from our friend Neil. And he asks this. My question is, if the Jewish people are God's chosen people, what exactly does that mean? I mean, will they get a better seat at the table, have a bigger mansion? What does that mean? I think, I think a good way to say it is he has chosen them specifically for a purpose. They are chosen for a purpose. And what is that purpose? God is going to save the world through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's really important for us to understand. It's not about uh, one being better than the other in terms of quality or character. Let's remember, in the, again, in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I didn't choose you because you're better, because you're bigger, because you're stronger. I chose you because I chose you, right? There's an election sense there that God picked Abraham and his descendants and made promises to him and to them that he would save the world through their descendant, Jesus Christ, who is Jewish. And all the people that are called by his name will include Jews and Gentiles. There does seem to be a distinction made that persists into eternity. God has a plan for Israel that's unique. And I think the thing we should focus on most importantly is that that plan involves 
the Jewish Messiah, and his treatment of Israel as a representation of his love, his concern, his character, his punishment and judgment, mm-hmm. but his mm-hmm. eternal commitment to the promises he makes. You know, God makes us a promise. We mm-hmm. trust his son, Jesus Christ. He will forgive our sins. We'll spend eternity with him. If we see him violate those promises with Israel, I'm a little nervous about whether he's going to keep those promises for me. But no, what I see him do is love Israel, mm. discipline them, win them back. And that is incredibly trust building. I can trust him. He yeah. has t- treated his people the way he promised. Wow, that's really good. Thank you so much. We're hearing from Dr. Stephen Sanchez, and a couple more questions have come in. And so I'm going to try to squeeze these in. Um, another one, this one is, I was reading the uh, the Torah portion about Noah, and is the sign of the bow in the sky, the rainbow, a sign for God or for us? God says he will see the bow and he will remember, whereas the other signs God gives for us are for us to remember, is the bow a similar sign like the blood on the doorposts for Passover? Oh, that's an interesting observation. Yeah, some would argue that it's a like an archer's bow that God has hung up. He has hung up his weapon, and oh. the sense is that I'm done judging the world that way. I'm not going to use a worldwide flood to wipe everybody out in the space of 40 days. And so, yeah, that is interesting. It, it is a sign for him the way the blood on the doorpost for the avenging angel they literally passed over the house because they saw that sign. Huh. Of course, God doesn't need that bow. So in that sense, it's for us as well, right? We look at it and we remember. And so I love that those signs are dual in that sense. Mm. Yeah, they cause So When we look up, we look up and see, wow, God can judge. And he can also show mercy. Yes. Yeah, that's beautiful. And we have one last question, if we can squeeze it in here with you, Stephen. And it comes out of Amos 9.15, and it refers to Israel's permanent establishment in the millennial kingdom. Is is that what you think about it when it refers to it in Amos, or is it um, Israel's permanent <clears throat> establishment right now? I I think it's difficult to argue that it's Amos's eternal planting right now. We don't know that. Okay. And let's remember that Israel has been in the land and out of the land and in the land and out of the land before. Quite frankly, there's not a whole lot to suggest that this might have to only be the last time this is going to happen. Um, and so I would argue that it's the future, it's the millennial kingdom, and then eventually the kingdom is taken up into God's kingdom and Israel will have their own place forever. <laughs> 